tonight, we're thinking through the Apostles' Creed, the earliest of those creeds. Again, I haven't said this in a few weeks, but just to remind you, this creed that we're studying through, the Apostles' Creed, it was it was written, at, at least the bulk of it was written in early 2nd century, so like early 100s A.D., so the generation just after the apostles themselves. If you think that, think about it this way, if if the earliest edition of the of the Apostles' Creed was in the early 100s, 120, 125, 130, think about the fact that John was writing his gospel in the 90s. <laughs> so we're just talking about 30, 30 years or so after the gospel of John itself, we have the Apostles' Creed, right? And, and in that creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's what we have. So to think through what we believe about the Holy Spirit, as you might have expected, we're going to look at a ridiculous amount of Scripture tonight. Um, but to begin somewhere, to begin somewhere, let's start in John chapter 14. So let's begin our thoughts on God's Word tonight with just a, a short passage, John 14. Verses 15 through 17. This is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed, crucified the next day. Some of his last words to his disciples. John 14. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 and just read through verse 17. Jesus told his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let's pray. Father, this and every other scripture we're going to consider tonight is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We confess our unwavering faith in that. And even when our faith does waver, we can trust that your spirit speaks through this word to, to strengthen us when we grow weak. And so I ask that as we study the word tonight, that you, you Holy Spirit, as we, as we think about you, you would give us eyes to see the truth in the scriptures. Give us minds to understand this truth and hearts to embrace and love and care about uh, this eternal truth about you. Give us wills to obey whatever you would lead us to do with it. Give us all ears to hear. Give me the help that I need to teach, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Like I said, over the, over the past several weeks, we've had uh, several weeks. We had a few weeks to think about the Father. We had like six weeks to think about the Son. And we got one week to think about the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we got quite a bit of ground to cover in one night. So if you're taking notes, I hope you are. It's always a good thing to do. Here's how we're going to think about it. It's not very fancy, but it, we're going to talk first about the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The person of the Holy Spirit. What does Scripture have to say about that? Who the Holy Spirit is. And Then we'll think for the remainder of our time about the work of the Holy Spirit as it is presented to us through the Old Testament, the New Testament for us, for our salvation. I'm going to say a lot. There's more that I could say, but got to cut it off somewhere. 
So he has to get to it, and let's think first about the person of the Holy Spirit. And and I guess the the most fundamental, I mean, it's in the in, in the heading itself, I guess the most fundamental and basic affirmation to make here about the Holy Spirit is the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person. Um, in, in, in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, um, the, the, the word for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament Hebrew, ruach, uh, and in the, the New Testament, the Greek word is pneuma. It, it means that both can be translated. The reason I'm saying that is because both of them can be, can be translated as wind or breath, right? Um, and, and in addition to spirit. And you might remember just a few Sundays ago when we were studying through the Gospel of John. We were in John chapter 3, one of the coolest moments. We were talking about Jesus' example of someone being born of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit, and he used the Jesus used the example of you see the wind or the wind you feel the wind blowing but you can't see it right you can see the effects of the wind but you can't see the wind as cool as I said that the wind was blowing here it was kind of awesome but anyway uh, Jesus was using a play on words right there because he, he was using the same word right this this the, the spirit and this wind is the same kind of imagery um, in in his talking with Nicodemus but that might if you if you think just the word itself. Um, in Hebrew and in Greek, can mean wind or breath. It's like a something moving. You might it might lead somebody to think that the Holy Spirit is more like an impersonal, impersonal force. You wouldn't call the wind a person. You wouldn't call when somebody blows out a birthday candle. That's a person that came out of their mouth. You know, you wouldn't say that. Same word. Why is the Spirit a person? Why would? But some people, some people do in fact. Heretical groups do think that the Holy Spirit, they, they deny that he's a person. Holy Spirit has a mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. We could give several examples of each of these, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to try to give you at least one of, of each thing. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. These things God, caught, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. He has a mind. He has emotions. Right? Uh, Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Emotions. The language of emotions. He has a will. He's a mind, emotions, has a will. At the end of a, a long paragraph in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, at the end of a long paragraph in which Paul is talking about every believer in the church having spiritual gifts, here's what he says. All these spiritual gifts among believers in the church, all these spiritual gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Why do you have the spiritual gifts that you have? Because the Holy Spirit of God decided he has a will, and he apportioned those gifts to you. So wind or, or breath or a mere force, as the Job's going to say, could not rationally be described as having a mind, will, and emotions. I mean, we, we sometimes about certain things, if something even inanimate 
is acting erratically or something like that. We might say, figuratively, that thing has a mind of its own, but we don't mean that literally. But Scripture says it literally about the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the Spirit is described as having not just mind, will, and emotions, but other characteristics of a person. Think about, most famously, Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I mean, you would never describe a joyful wind, right? But those things are true of the Spirit, on top of the fact that he's called the Holy Spirit. He's holy. And don't overlook the simple fact that in all of those scriptures we've just read about the Holy Spirit, uh, the, 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 the words who and he pronouns were used of him. Not it, but he. There was a, used to be a lady, sweet lady in, in Lakeview Baptist Church. Her name was Shirley Chance. And she, I mean, she used to be the biggest amener of Brother Al. I mean, she would go crazy. But uh, she, any to any time, any time, I promise you, any time that she ever... If she was ever talking to you, she would talk to you about Jesus. But she would also, anytime she referred to the Holy Spirit, she would say, He the Holy Spirit. He the Holy Spirit. She always uh, would say that and just to emphasize the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, um, you know, as, as, as you then might expect, he doesn't just um, possess characteristics of a person. That's one reason we believe he's a person. But he performs the actions of a person in the, in the scriptures. That's the second reason we believe he's a person. He is not, doesn't just possess characteristics, but he does things that persons do. Like what? John 14, 26. He teaches. The Holy Spirit will teach you all these things. He teaches in John 14, 26. In John 15, 26, he bears witness to Jesus. Romans 8, 14 he leads and he guides believers. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He teaches us. He bears witness to Jesus. He leads us and guides us. Just a few verses later in Romans 8, 26, it tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for believers, praying for you. In Acts 13, 4, it says that Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit on their first missionary journey. Not so he 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 has characteristics of a person. He performs the actions that a, a person would. A wind or a force would not do any of those things that I just described. That Scripture describes. A third reason he's he's a person. He's treated as a person. He is treated as a person in Scripture. How? He can be lied to. Acts in Acts chapter five verse three, Ananias and Sapphira. You have lied. You can't even lie to your dog or your cat i mean you could but he doesn't know it and like you just it wouldn't you even call it that you're not really having that kind of communication with your dog you can't lie to a, to a, a dog let alone the wind or a force but you can lie to the holy spirit stephen in acts chapter 7 verse 51 right before he was stoned to death as the first christian martyr he told the jewish leaders you always resist the holy spirit you can resist him Interestingly, too, in, 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 um, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, 
and it's a big deal, you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that one uh, is interesting. Matthew 12, 31, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because not only does that one illustrate to us that the Holy Spirit is a person, but the second big truth about the personhood of the Holy Spirit, it tells us that he is not just a person, but that he is God. Because it wouldn't make any sense for you to, to blaspheme a tree or blaspheme something else in impersonal but it indicates that the holy spirit is a divine person right you can't even blaspheme me you can say something really ugly to me about me you can lie about me you can cuss me out you can like wish call a curse down on me but in, in there is nothing that could come out of your mouth that would blaspheme me why because only god is blasphemable right you can't blaspheme me, but you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So, it, it, so it, that, that alone shows you that, that he is God. So that gets to the other fundamental truth about him, that, that, that he's not just a person, but he's deity, his divine personhood. Where else do we see his divinity, his deity in the, in the Scriptures? Well, again, I've already mentioned the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Remember, they lied to the, to the apostles about the, an offering they were making. And Peter said that when they lied to the apostles, they were also lying to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when they lied to the Holy Spirit, he says, you're lying <laughs> to the Lord when you did that because, you know, he says in Acts 5, 3 and 4, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men but to God. Or just think about this. In 1 first, in first Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul, um, there's two places in 1 in Corinthians, in chapter 3 and in chapter 6. In chapter 6, Paul uses, uh, well, in both of these it would, make, it, would, it, would, it would prove the point. In chapter 6, it's a singular you. You personally are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You, believer, in chapter 3, it's a y'all. Y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit together. Uh, but just think about that imagery. You are, he say, Paul says that the church is God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you, dwells in y'all. Right? Um, think about that imagery. We are a temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Who dwelt in the temple in the, in the Old Testament? God the presence of God himself dwelt in the Old Testament temple. And Paul is now saying that God's very presence dwells among us. How? Through the Holy Spirit, right, who is God. And when you read, when you, when you uh, another example of knowing how he's, the Scripture teaching he's God, when you read carefully the Scriptures and you just pay attention to what you're reading, pay really careful attention, you see examples like, Acts chapter 28, verses 25 through 27. I'm not going to read all of it, but just here's how that passage begins. Acts 28, verses 25 to 27. Paul says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. And if you turn back to Isaiah 6, 8 through 10, you see those words that he's quoting, 
And in that passage, it is the Lord God who is speaking. And when, I, when Paul quotes it, he says, that's the Holy Spirit speaking. And he's indirectly saying the Holy Spirit was God speaking there in Acts chapter 6. Think also about different times when the, uh, just when the Holy Spirit is mentioned alongside the Father and the Son, like, like triadic passages. Think about Second uh, Corinthians 13. The, we'll, we'll say that as a, as a benediction tonight. Uh, or the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of, singular, not the names of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the singular name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right there, side by side. Over and over again, Scripture just plainly identifies the Holy Spirit as God by just referring to Him as God. But He also, like a person, He possesses attributes and characteristics that only God possesses. Like what? Hebrews 9.14 says that the Spirit is eternal. Only God is eternal. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says that He is omniscient. He knows all things. Psalm 139, great psalm. Verses 7 through 10 says He is omnipresent. Where can I go from your spirit? Things that are only true of God. Eternal, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, true of the spirit. And not just things that are true of God are true of the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit does things that only God can do. Um, creation itself. You see the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis 1-2. The Holy Spirit regenerates, regenerates people so that they come to faith in Christ, gives them eternal life in their hearts. Only God can do that. That's Jesus' point to Nicodemus in John 3. When he said, you must be born again, he says it a different way. Just a few verses later, you must be born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just cause us to be born again. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, which is something that only God can do. We see that in 1 Corinthians 3.18. When he, when he says uh, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, I'm trying to draw this from memory, when he talks about, um, we we are. Well, the, it's it's like we're incrementally. What's the what's the phrase he uses? We're in, incrementally becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. He says, uh, "Oh gosh, is it? Did I give you the wrong text? It's Second Corinthians three eighteen, not First Corinthians. That's my problem. Um, so sorry. Hope you didn't write that in pen. But he said, he says." And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's sanctification. And then he says, this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He sanctifies us. Or just think about how many times we're told that the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. Right? 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says that these men who wrote the Scriptures, these men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures and that the Scriptures are repeatedly referred to as the Word of God. So earlier, when we noted that the Holy Spirit has a will and decides things just like a person does, uh, I don't know if you noticed that He decides things that only God can decide. Like the distribution of spiritual gifts among the believers in the church. 
right? Or the appointment and direction and, and sending of missionaries on their journeys. All through Acts, you see that. So the Scriptures could not be any clearer that the Holy Spirit is not just an impersonal force like the wind or however you might want to compare that, but he's, and he's, not, he's a person, but not just a person. He is a, he's the person of God himself together with the Father and the Son, one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. And as such, think about that. That might just seem like an academic exercise we just went through, but it's not. Think about what we just said and the implications that has on our life. What, what, how ought you to respond to those basic truths about the Holy Spirit? You, you understand that, that he is to be worshipped as God. That he is to be, his word should be listened to and obeyed and trusted and believed and loved and he should be thanked and looked to for help and comfort in our time of need. I mean, it's all the things you would say about God, you say and do for the Holy Spirit because he is God. That's who the Holy Spirit is according to the Scriptures. But what did the Scriptures teach about the work of the Holy Spirit? Okay? Meaning, how is he active in the world, especially as it pertains to us and to our salvation? Let's take a few minutes to consider that. All right. Here's how I want to think about this. Um, I want to think first about the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And just think, I, remember, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to say everything there is to be said. So if I don't say something that you were curious about, just ask me. But the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, then in the life and ministry of Jesus, then in the life and ministry, ministry of, among the church and believers. Okay? Old Testament, Jesus, us. Okay? Um. When you let's go Old Testament. So when you read the Old Testament, and you, then you you read the Old Testament, you think noti- noticing particularly where the Holy Spirit comes up when you when you read it, and then you, if you just step back and then said, okay, how can I summarize what I just read about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Uh, it seems like you can you can summarize it this way that that there seems to be f- basic basically four different categories of people that the Holy Spirit. Um, empowered or, or worked, worked upon in a special way in the Old Testament. Four categories of people. Here they are. Uh, civil rulers or kings. Civil rulers or kings. Prophets. Judges. And craftsmen. <laughs> civil rulers or kings. Prophets. Judges. And craftsmen. Why is this important? Because this, this just seems tedious. I think we'll see in a minute why this is important as we see how it progresses to the New Testament. So, uh, craftsmen. We see the Holy Spirit working in people when they were building the tabernacle, building the temple. Just one example, Exodus chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. So he drew and he built all kinds of cool stuff because he was filled with the Holy Spirit to do that work. Judges. All through the book of Judges. Don't model your life after anything in the book of Judges. I mean, the last 
the last word in the book of Judges is everyone, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you're like, after I just read what I just read, I really believe that. But, but it wasn't like God totally left the people as wicked as they were several times throughout the book of Judges. The Holy Spirit, it is specifically said, the Holy Spirit rushed upon different people, different people he raised up as a judge to fight battle on behalf of the people and lead the people in battle. In Judges 3.10, he comes upon Othniel. In Judges 6.34, upon Gideon. 11.29, upon Jephthah. 13.25, and again in chapter 14, on Samson. See it over and over again. Spirit of God rushed upon him. Clearly, too numerous to, to, to name them all. You see the Holy Spirit coming upon the prophets. I mean, there's just too many. I mean, you just know it. I mean, like, and especially Elijah and Elisha. So just know that the Holy Spirit's upon prophets over and over again. With regard to civil rulers or kings, um, civil ruler would be Moses would be an example. <coughs> and uh, in Numbers 11, we quoted Numbers 11 last week. Remember that passage, the one where Moses is like, just kill me now. I'm, I, I'm tired of leading all these people. They're, they're stubborn. I need help, Lord. And, and the Lord said, well, call the elders of the people, the 70 elders. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to take you. Samuel 11, 6, it says, the, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. In that day, made him very courageous in battle to defeat the Ammonites. But as long as he was king, the Spirit of God was on him to rule as king. But you remember, if you know the story of Saul, in 1 Samuel 16, 14, the Spirit departed from Saul because of his sin. And the Holy Spirit at that point rushed upon David, who was the next king. You can The same Spirit that was on Saul to be king was now upon David. It gives you some insight, by the way, doesn't it? That when David commits as king, as king when he commits adultery with Bathsheba, he writes Psalm 51. That's why he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Right? Don't remove me from being king. But the Spirit departed from Saul as king. Why go through all this? Because like I said, when you read the Holy Spirit, and how many read the Holy Spirit? When you read the Old Testament, and then you step back and you say, how can I summarize it? You say, I got these, I, the Holy Spirit works in these four groups of people, and it, and it works in these kinds of ways. If you step back further from that and try to summarize that, you, you, you sort of see a pattern in all of this. And the pattern of the work of the Holy Spirit, generally speaking, empowering work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, seemed to be, first, that it was task-oriented. It was task-oriented. Empowering craftsmen to build, prophets to prophesy, judges to lead in battle, Right? Civil rulers and kings to rule. There was a specific task in mind. And because that is true, because spirit empowerment in the Old Testament was task-oriented, it was also um, selective. Selective. In other words, that Numbers 11, that Numbers 11 passage is very helpful here in seeing the selectiveness of spirit empowerment. Because first, Moses was the one Right? And then when he when he complained, the Holy the Lord took it wasn't just Moses the honor, it was seventy of the other elders. But that's seventy-one people out of all of Israel. Holy Spirit was just
task-oriented in his empowerment, selective in his empowerment, and temporary. Temporary. Like, he didn't empower everyone, but only those used for the task, and when the task was complete, spirit departed. Right? When Saul was finished being king, spirit departed. Why is it important to go through all this? Why is it, why is it important to, to walk through all these tall weeds and try to blaze a trail here? Why? Because it, it has everything to do with the blessing you enjoy today in Christ. Because when you compare this with what the Old Testament prophets under the, under the task-oriented, select, and limited inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what they prophesied about the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, it is anything but task-oriented, selective, or temporary. So that being said, how did the how did the prophets talk about the, the coming of this new covenant? I know we've said a bit about the new covenant already this semester in our study with John. We've talked about a lot about the new covenant in study here in Apostle 3, but there's an angle we haven't said much about yet. Because when the prophets foretell about this era of the coming new covenant in Christ, sometimes it at times it seems like they're describing it in two totally different ways. How so? Because sometimes when they look forward to the new covenant, they they prophesy about a coming Messiah. About a coming Messiah. So here's a famous example of that. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Christmas is coming. For to us a child is born. Right? To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. The name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and rule it and uphold it with justice and righteousness this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do so coming Messiah Micah 5 1 through 5 prophesies this Messiah coming will be born in Bethlehem Ezekiel 37 oh man just write this passage down Ezekiel 37 24 through 28 and just, I want you to at some point read that passage and see how many allusions to all the different covenants you can find. It's like, it, it doesn't just come out and say it, but there's allusions to covenant of Noah, the Noah, the Moses, the David. And it's like talking about this new covenant, Jesus, it's like Jesus is going to tie up all of those loose ends. All that they were pointing forward to, he's going to fulfill all those covenants. Right? Malachi 3, 1 through 5, prophesies that this coming Messiah would be God himself coming in the flesh. So over and over again, prophets say, this new covenant era is going to be the era of the Messiah. He's coming. But then, also, completely differently, it seems like they prophesied that this, this coming new covenant is going to be the age of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is going to come. So, for example... Isaiah 32, 15 talks about it as a day when the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is being forest. Joel 2, 28 and following. This is the passage that Peter stood up and, 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 and said in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when 
Holy Spirit will pour it out. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men, young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. Ezekiel famously prophesied in Ezekiel 36, 25 and following. I will put my Spirit within you on that day. Cause you to walk in my statutes. Careful to obey my rule. Over and over again, you have almost two, two different visions for what's going to happen on this coming day when the new covenant comes about. It's a day in which the Messiah will come. Well, it's a day in which the Holy Spirit's going to come. Which is it? Both. Because the careful reader of the New Testament will not see it as an either or all the time, but the careful reader will actually see that the prophets merge these two ideas when they prophesy that this coming Messiah would be the Spirit-anointed Messiah. So the Holy Spirit will come in fullness with him. Think, for example, about the prophecy at the beginning of Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's Jesus, in the line of Jesse and David. There shall come forth from the stump of Jesse a shoot, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You remember also last week when we talked about Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, and he and they handed him the scroll and he opened it to Isaiah 61, and he read the scripture and like a boss he rolled it up and said the scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. Sat down. Do you remember what that passage said? Isaiah 51. It said, He the Messiah standing up with the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Right there, that is an example of Jesus himself saying that the Spirit of the Lord, he, he, that he is the, the Spirit anointed Messiah prophesied to come. And we see the Holy Spirit present at every point in Jesus' life and ministry. Where we've moved on now from the, whole, from the Old Testament now into the life of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit was 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 active at the birth and the incarnation of the of the of Jesus. Right? Luke 135. And the angel answered Mary. Did not talk to her. The angel answered Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born will be called holy, the Son of God. This spirit overshadowing, hovering over, as reminiscent of creation, where the, the, the Spirit of God hovered over the first creation. It's like now hovering over Mary, Jesus is the dawn of a new creation. Right? And perhaps it also shows that Jesus was indwelt by the Holy Spirit from birth. Because think about what we find later in Luke chapter 2. Verses 40 and 52, it talks about Jesus grew strong and in stature and in favor with God and man and grew in wisdom. That's like Isaiah 11 prophesied. The spirit of wisdom will rest upon Jesus grew in wisdom. The spirit, the spirit anointed Jesus during his ministry. Think about Luke 3, 21 and 22. The spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son. That's signifying among other things, that his public ministry was beginning. And in the very next chapter, 
In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit who led him. The Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted. Right? And then after, after the 40 days of temptation, the Spirit led him back out. And he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 16. And it's the very next passage after that that Jesus is in his hometown and reads out of 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And sits down. Jesus cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. Showing his authority over principalities and powers. Here's how, by the way, sometimes you find these cool little verses, they're like just nice little one-sentence summaries of things. And here's a Here's a one-sentence summary of Jesus' ministry in Acts 10.38. Acts 10.38. Just a good little summary of Jesus' ministry. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Anointed with the Holy Spirit. And his death and his resurrection are not exempt from the Holy Spirit's work. Even in his death on the cross, Hebrews 9.14 says that Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. The spirit empowered him and was present with him in that ordeal. But then Romans 8.11 says that the Holy Spirit was active in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So from, from the beginning to the end, from incarnation to resurrection, Jesus was the Spirit anointed Messiah. Was that the end of the Spirit's work? Was it just prophesied that the Messiah was going to come, Holy Spirit's going to come? Oh, coming at the same time, Spirit anointed Messiah. Is that the end of it? Is that the end game? No. No. Uh, uh, Jesus himself answers that that's not the end of the end of the line through the scripture we began with tonight in John 14. And, and that's just one instance in in John 14, 15, and 16, he promised, and he says, it's good if you I go away. I'm going to send another helper to you, right? The same spirit that filled Jesus would do the same for them. The same spirit that empowered him and his humanity would do the same for them. Because when he ascended back to the Father, he would pour out the spirit on them and on all believers, just as Joel had prophesied. When you come to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out now on all the believers and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stood up that day, like I mentioned, quoted that Joel 2 passage. So the Spirit was at work in the Old Testament in task-oriented, selective, temporary ways, but promised a day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all believers and it would happen through a Spirit-anointed Messiah. And Jesus brought about those promises. So now the Holy Spirit is present from the beginning in every believer from the beginning of your life forevermore from the beginning of your eternal life so just as Jesus taught in John 3 that it's the spirit who regenerates us and brings us to faith in Christ at the beginning of our Christian life it's, the, it's also the Holy Spirit who constantly dwells in us all our life long as a believer um, again 1 Corinthians 6 19 each individual believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit he doesn't just bring you to faith in Christ. He, he indwells you from that moment on for the rest of eternity. And the church, again, 1 Corinthians 3.16, the church is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Even us right now is here. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills us. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Ephesians 5.18. He fills us as we let his word dwell in us richly and he empowers us to walk in obedience and produce in us, in our lives, the life of Christ. It's not just working in us as individuals, but among us as the local church. As we've already seen, apportioning gifts as he sees fit so that we're equipped by his power to model the life of Christ bring him glory. There's one more thing. The Holy Spirit doesn't just overshadow us at the beginning of our lives, right? And He doesn't just indwell us daily. And He doesn't just fill us to walk in obedience. And He doesn't just sovereignly distribute gifts and abilities to us as His temple. Uh, it's funny. He, he gifted, in the Old Testament, He gifted men, craftsmen, uh, to build his temple. And now that we are his temple, he gives us. Right? He doesn't just do that. He, Romans 8.23 talks about the fact that we have, what well, well, I'm trying to say this Romans 8 passage, that he doesn't just do all these things in this life, but he also assures us of our eternal life to the very end. That's the role of the Spirit. Romans 8.23, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. As we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have, while we're waiting, eagerly waiting, he said, we, we ought to be in the Word and with each other, encouraging us, each other in the faith so much that we, we, we daily feel a pinch of that, eagerly waiting. Don't get so caught up with what's happening here. But anyway, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. If we wait for the final day, we already now have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Think about that, that imagery. What are the first fruits? They are the first pickings of a, of a greater harvest to come. Right? So the Spirit is given to us now as a taste of what is more fully to come in the future. In several passages, the Holy Spirit is described as a pledge. As a pledge. It's a, like a firm promise, a guarantee of our eternal life. Ephesians 1.14 The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that for us who have trusted in Christ, God the Father has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, a pledge. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In a very similar way, I just read one example. The Holy Spirit is described in the New Testament as a seal. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, like a, like a seal on an envelope. Like Think about in, in old times when they would, they would put a wax seal on it. They're not just uh, seal the envelope shut, but they would put the crest of the owner on it, imprint that, saying, who is sending the letter? It belongs to me. It's coming from me. Right? And, uh, and, and, and or this word in the Old Testament was also used for like branding cattle. That cow belongs to me. But that, that 2 Corinthians 1.22 passage that I just mentioned, God the Father has put his seal on us. By his Holy Spirit. 
One more, Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I told you it was a lie. Ridiculous mind scripture. What a truth we declare when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. He is the divine third person of our triune God. And he, he was active in ways in the Old Testament that he would far exceed in the new and in our life today. Being present in and with Christ as he lived and obeyed and died and rose again for our salvation. And now he regenerates us and, and he regenerates us to come, even to come in repentance and faith to Christ. And from that moment on, indwells us to know his presence, fills us to know his power, and he seals us as our guarantee to know the certainty of his promise for our people. That's the Holy Spirit. As I pray, I'm going to invite the band to come up here and Father, thank you so much for the goodness and the richness of the word. Thank you that, that you, you've not left us as orphans. You've given us your Holy Spirit to produce in us the likeness of Christ. Lord, I pray that uh, we would strive in our, in our lives to um, not quench the Spirit in our life, grieve, grieve the Spirit in our life, follow hard after you, knowing that as we as we follow hard after you, uh, the Spirit is already at work in our lives and will do uh, in us what uh, make us more like Christ for your glory, for our good. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.